Well, good morning. It's good to be together, all of us in here in the house of the Lord, even on this beautiful warm day that the Lord has given us. So much of the country and the northern hemisphere is uh, very cold, and we are here enjoying this wonderful weather. What a blessing that is. We do want to continue our short series in 1 Corinthians 13. You can go ahead and turn there if you like, 1 Corinthians 13, we began some weeks back, we began with considering the prerequisite of love, and that was verses 1 to 3. We spent at least three weeks on the portrait of love, as Paul would describe it in those middle verses. And now we come to this last section, verses 8 to 13, which we will not finish today, but we will look at least uh, verses 8 to 10, and um, God willing, Uh, complete it next week. And really what Paul is doing here is he's setting the gifts in opposition to love. He's speaking of the permanence of love, that it never fails. And when compared to temporal spiritual gifts, it never fails. And his tone is actually polemic as he goes through all of this. You'll remember that the church at Corinth put too much emphasis on these spiritual gifts of prophesying, a word of knowledge, and tongues, and, and they, were, they were boasting in these types of things. They, they claimed that their having these gifts was an indication that they had arrived to the perfect, where Paul says the exact opposite in this text. The apostle insists that you clinging to these gifts, which were meant to be temporal in nature, is an indication that you have not understood what is the perfect And there's a lot of debate about that, and we'll get to that soon. Corinth was concerned, and overly concerned, I would say, with temporal things. The temporal things that that are going on around them. And and they were guilty of all manner of sin. They walked in pride. They were plagued by selfishness. And that's why he describes love in this way, as we talked about. They were not walking in obedience in many cases, Um, They were given to compromise. They were given to sexual immorality. So this was far from a perfect, sinless church. But Paul still has hope in them, and he writes to them in that manner. And he begins, really, verse 8, this last section, with very simply, after those 15 descriptive terms, love never fails. Love never fails. That is, it never disappears. It never disintegrates. It, 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 it never ceases to be. Love, as we said last week, is tenacious. It is powerful. Love never fails. Just like God's great love for us never fails. He has set His love upon us in eternity past, and He loves us all the way through into eternity, far, far into the future. It's really not a future, it's into eternity. He set his love upon us in that way. And this is not, by the way, some kind of mushy, shallow, human type of love. And sometimes, you know, you hear people talk about, oh, agape love and, and all of this kind of thing. And it's much more deeper than that. It's the idea of God's unfailing love to you. It is altogether unfailing. Why? Because of his covenant faithfulness. He does not leave his own. He will never leave his own. His unfailing love to the bride, the bride in which Christ died for. 
Our love to God flows because He has first loved us. It's like an ocean that, that as it were, feeds small streams into our hearts. We're able to respond in some small way in our love to God and our adoration of Him. But it is His great love, the ocean of His love, that has been lavished upon us. So let's go ahead and read the text. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pick it up from verse 4 and read to the end. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4, reading from the New American Standard. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked, it does not take into an account a wrong suffered, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, it bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, and reason like a child. And when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. But now faith Hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's ask the Lord's help once again. Father in heaven, we do confess that we are a needy people. We are weak. We are easily distracted. We're cumbered with cares that we have not cast upon you as we're commanded to. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to sort those things out even now as we come, as it were, to learn at your feet from your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us receptive hearts to receive these things, that you would pour out the Holy Spirit upon us to give us understanding, even as the inspired word, your inspired word is expounded. Lord, we pray most of all that Jesus Christ would be lifted up and exalted here in our midst as as a church and in our individual hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Paul had described love in many different ways in this chapter, and you know we've already talked about it. It's in greeting cards. It hangs on walls. Sometimes I confess we actually got one as a wedding gift 22 years ago, and you know there's like years you go by and you just you know that's that's the First Corinthians 13. It's not like every day you read it and oh I really want to apply that type of thing, and so it almost becomes commonplace. But really, what Paul does is he sets forth a masterpiece of poetic beauty, as we have said. And, and I want to remind you, dear brethren, that, that these are not adjectives. Like if I was described this day, um, when past, praying with Pastor Steve out there, and we commented, it's a beautiful day, I could say the sky is blue, the sun is bright, the flowers are blooming. You know, I could describe various things, but, but what Paul does is he doesn't list adjectives, he gives us verbs. It's not so much, this is what love is, let me paint it for you, this is what love does. This is what love does in the born-again, 
believer, and he gives 15 qualities. And these 15 qualities are beautifully embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In his life and ministry, you see these. He says he begins, really, love is patient, sort of bookended, like I said last week, with love endures all things. That is, it's patient and it perseveres. That's the bookends uh, to this, I would submit to you. But to be patient means to bear up even under provocation. Even when someone's in your face, it's to be patient. It says love is kind. It's, in other words, love does kind things to others. It's then the negatives. There was eight negatives. It's not envious. It's not jealous. It's, it doesn't brag. It's not a windbag that's puffing oneself up all the time. It's not arrogant uh, to have an exaggerated self-conception. It is not rude, it does not seek its own, and it is not easily provoked, even in the midst of opposition. And and this being provoked is an inward arousal when you feel yourself beginning to be angry. You haven't demonstrated that, but you feel it on the inside. And then the last or second to last negative he gives, love does not keep a book of evils. And what Paul does is give a, a word picture as it here. And the NAS says, does not take into account a wrong suffered. It's the picture of someone with a ledger that every offense, I've got to record it. I've got to record it type of thing. Love doesn't do that. Love overlooks in many cases. Of course, there is a place for confrontation and, and all of that to the Bible and its clear teaching. Um, but in, in, in the general sense, Love does not keep all these little records. And then verse 7, there's fourfold of all things that he sets forth that bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. That is, it again, that, it, that it, it suffers long. It bears. It believes the best. It's not that it's gullible because there's a place for discernment, but it believes the best, that it hopes, it sees the bright side of things. And even with Corinth and the mess that this church was in, you know, Paul could say uh, with great sincerity, twice I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. I have confidence that if the Spirit of God is at work in you, that indeed you will be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And it endures long to stand one's ground, to persevere even in the face of great opposition. Um, as Robinson says, it carries on like a stout-hearted soldier. And as we have said, there's no way that you can practice these things if you don't have the Holy Spirit. The world can try to do these things. They may have some victory for a, 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 a short season of time, but ultimately you need the Holy Spirit. And even more than that, you need the love of Christ poured out into your heart that you're saturated with the love of Christ. Because then as you live that life of gratitude, that will be the natural outflow, these things. So today, having set forth the portrait of love, we begin with the permanence of love And we will learn something of this. And Paul asserts that prophecies and knowledge will be abolished and that tongues will cease. As much as we love the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God, missions, the gospel going forth, all of our evangelistic outreach at the rescue mission, Balboa Park and the abortion mills, we love all of that. But these are partial things. And someday when the perfect comes, there will be no more need for that. We're going to hear from Pastor Dave a little later about his 
missionary uh, things that he's seen and, and accomplished and all of that. And we can rejoice in those things. But someday all of these will be done away with when the perfect comes. We'll have no need to have the scriptures expounded. We'll be in the very presence of God as, as we learn more and more about him. He illustrates it in two ways. Verses 9 and 10 is an illustration and verses 11 and 12 and we'll um, get to those uh, in due course. The partial, done away when the perfect comes. Childhood, infancy as it were, infant babblings, done away with when adulthood comes. Speaking of the, the permanence of love. And unfortunately in our day, there's an overemphasis on the Holy Spirit, even trying to bring some of these apostolic gifts back into the present day. And it leads to confusion, much confusion. And uh, why? It's because they ignore God's final revelation, seeking to put too much emphasis on the gifts rather than the final word of God. So we're going to consider this under two heads. The first phrase, love never fails. And very simply, the gifts will pass away. Love never fails because God never ceases to exist. God is love. And when it says love never fails, it's, uh, it's speaking of time, not necessarily frequency. Paul exalts in the perpetuity of love. Brothers and sisters, love is the very nature of God. It will be the very theme of heaven for all eternity, and thus it cannot fail. In fact, in heaven we will have no need of even faith and hope. Love will reign. Love will be present Spiritual gifts of discernment and prophecy and knowledge and miracles, there'll be no need when we're in glory. Now, the word that he uses here for fails can mean to fall. It's the idea that, that it never becomes invalid. It never comes to an end. It's used of a, a leaf falling off of a tree to the ground or a flower petal falling off of a, a rose. It's that type of thing. Or even of structures. You know, you, some of these old buildings, they implode and you see the explosion and, the, and what happens, it crumbles to the ground and falls. And so it can speak of even a, a structure falling into pieces, collapsing, going down. But what is Paul say, love will never do this. Love will always be. It never collapses in defeat. It, it's never destroyed. It never fails. It's never incomplete and it never will fall apart. Jesus uses this word in Luke and he says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. Isn't that amazing? That's the, the word that he choos, chooses to use there, which probably is an indication of the many texts speaking of the perpetuity of God's perfect law. Love, never failing, is synonymous with what he says in the last verse. Look down at verse 13. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these are love. And what he says is there's abiding. The, the word can mean remaining. Love remains. Love never fails. But the reality is, is that in this life, love is not always victorious. We're not always treated with love, even amongst the brethren. There's conflict. There's offenses. There's, there's, biblical, there's biblical methods to resolve those conflicts that we're to put into practice, not just be offended and go away. 
but actually to seek to resolve conflict. In this life, love is not always victorious, and that's most clearly seen where? The Lord Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, the sinless one that lived a perfect, absolute perfect life, did so much good, demonstrated so much love, and yet he's persecuted, ridiculed, treated cruelly by the hands of sinful man, nailed to a cross in brutality, and even his father pours out his wrath upon him as he was there as a substitute for our sin. Love is not always victorious in this life and the here and now. But ultimately, love never fails. When the partial's done away with, when the sin-cursed world is done away with, after the Lord comes at the consummation of the Asians to put everything right, to judge the wicked, to reward the righteous, to bring the righteous home, love will reign forever and will always be victorious. This is the unconditional divine warranty of love, is that it lasts forever. There is never a time when love will not exist. I hope you have an appreciation for love and the love of God in particular towards you. Well, now for the comparison that he says, love love never fails. And you notice the but, what's the but for? He's setting forth a contrast in the rest of the verse. But if there are gifts, they will be done away with. And he mentions three. He mentions um, gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. He uses two different verbs to describe these three things. Probably the idea of a chiasm, but uh, the first and the third speak of the same way. The NAS translates it the same. Some translations translate it differently. Prophecy will be done away Knowledge will be done away. Tongues will cease. We've already seen that love excels the many gifts of what the Corinthians boasted in. Love lasts, but all the spiritual gifts are temporary. They're temporary. There's an expiration date on them, as it were. And so prophecy will pass away. Uh, The New English translation has set aside, and in fact, the New American Standard translates this verb that way in some places. Uh, The ESV, pass away, the NAS, done away with. Well, what does he mean by prophecy? Well, probably twofold. Um, Ultimately, the declaring of new revelation, the, the foretelling, but then there's also the expounding of what's been revealed, as the Puritans would call prophecy. Preaching is prophecy. It's declaring what has been revealed, not new revelation, but expounding what has been revealed. And Paul begins with this gift, which he spends much of the next chapter talking about. In fact, the superiority and, and his, he would say, the most important gift. And, and he begins there. Look in 14, 19, just probably across the page on your Bible, or 18. I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct, that's where we get the word catechize, instruct others rather than 10,000 words of a tongue. And so Paul loves prophecy. He begins with his own preferred gift, and he makes it clear that he's not just picking on the flaws, the flawed gifts and and, and the uh, flaws of the Corinthian church, the gifts that they were abusing. Now, this word 
uh, pass away. It's future tense. It will pass away from the future from when he has uh, written it. Uh, it's in the passive voice. It, 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 the idea is that it, it's it, to cause something to come to an end, to be no longer in existence, to abolish, to wipe out, or to set aside is the lexical definition of this. In other words, to reduce it to inactivity. And in the passive voice, it, it's, it's telling us that it's something will cause them to stop. The gift of prophecy will be caused to stop by something. The hint is in verse 10. It's when the perfect comes. We don't need prophecy anymore. Paul uses this verb several times, actually, even in this section. As I said, he'll use it in regards to knowledge at the end of verse 8. But he also uses it in verses 10 and 11. The partial will be done away, so abolished. So he, he uses it there. And in verse 11, when he speaks of setting aside childish things, he uses it there. He uses it also in 1 Corinthians 6 of God and Christ. God will do away with both the stomach and food. 2 Timothy 1.10 and in which now has been manifested through the appearing of the Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death, who did away with death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He uses it in an eschatological sense in chapter 15, as I believe he's doing here in chapter 15. If you want to look at verse 24 and 26. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. In verse 26, the last enemy to be abolished, to be done away with, is death. In that great resurrection chapter. Perhaps Paul has in mind something of that new covenant promise that we see in Jeremiah 31. Uh, in verse 34, it states, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, the Holy Bible that we love, the Word of God that we treasure, that we read, that we, we, we look at as a, an, an, an oper- a gold mine to be able to continue to dig, is not fully exhaustive. It tells us what we need to know, but it doesn't tell us everything about God. As though when we get to heaven, it's like, oh, I've already read all that. I knew everything about your character and all of your ways and all of that. It's far from it. It's a complete chasm from it. It's a gold mine in which no man on earth, no matter how long he lives, can plumb the complete depths of the Word of God. And that's the beautiful thing of eternity. Eternity will be a grand discovery of learning more and more of the ways of God and the character of God and His love and His perseverance with us and for us. True communion. We have union with Christ now. But this union and communion will be sweetened so much more in glory. So that he could say in verse 9 and 10, for, there's the reason, we know in part. Our knowledge is partial now. We prophesy in part. It's not perfect. It's, it's limited in so many ways. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. 
Eternity will be a beautiful place and time of just learning more and more about God and the ways of God forever and ever and ever. The Bible is absolutely complete as far as what we need to know, yet it doesn't tell us every single thing about God. It's like our men that are in Afghanistan right now. The generals who, who have designed the mission do not reveal the whole mission to the soldiers. They have a what? need-to-know basis. Here's what you need to know. Go in, take the guy out. You don't need to know where you're going next and that kind of thing. So too for us. He's revealed everything we need for life and godliness. It is complete in that sense. And he goes on. Not only will prophecy pass away, but tongues will cease. And this word cease uh, can mean to be stilled. It's only used 15 times. It's a favorite of Luke in both his gospel and Acts. Paul does use it three times in Ephesians 1.16. Do not cease to give thanks for all of you, making mention of you in my prayers. However, <clears throat> rather than the passive voice, this verb is in the middle voice. So that is to say that tongues will come to an end on their own. Tongues will come to an end on their own. Tongues will automatically cease themselves. It's like when God gave tongues as this authenticating gift, it was like a, an energizer battery that had a limited amount of life and eventually the battery dies out. Like, I hope my battery doesn't die on my iPad. That would be a terrible thing. But So the, the, the idea that there's a, a limited amount of time and then tongues cease on their own. Now, there's a lot of debate about tongues in our day, and um, we've even had some new visitors that are newer to the faith ask uh, for clarification on this and uh, privately and so forth. And tongues, though, we see in Acts chapter 2. And what was that event? Pentecost? What was significant about that Pentecost? Pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so these were authenticating times and, and, and people were speaking other languages, I believe. It was not senseless babbling as some you will hear the, if you go to the crackpot TV religion God channels, you'll hear a lot of that kind of stuff. It's mumble and jumble and that kind of thing. But look at chapter 14 of verse 22. Paul says clearly, so then tongues are for a sign. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. And by the way, if, if you heard somebody, you know, somebody that only speaks Swahili suddenly speaking Italian or something like that, that would be a sign. But this being a sign to unbelievers, if you heard somebody just actually uh, babbling and like senseless, where it sounds possessed and demonic, that, that, would, that would frighten unbelievers. It wouldn't like be a testimony to unbelievers. And then he says, prophecy is for a sign not to believers, but, but to us who believe. So like miraculous gifts of healing and healing on command, you know, Peter touched him and he was made well. Paul heals and, and all of this kind of, these kinds of things were limited in their scope and authenticating gifts to validate the apostolic age and the coming in of the new covenants. And so these were here. And so at the closing of the canon of Scripture, as the apostles have passed off the scene, the church is with a foundation based on what? Built on what? 
the apostles and the prophets, right? So as they have passed off the scene, the church is built, the closing of the canon, the new covenant has, has come, those revelatory and, and miraculous gifts on demand have passed off the scene as well. Does God still do miracles? Yes and amen. But I can't touch Mrs. Robinson up here and demand that she never has another migraine again. I can't touch her brother Marlon, who's gone through chemo for a long time, and say, be gone, cancer, because I don't have that authority. But have we laid hands on him? Have we begged before the Lord? Have we gathered together in our prayer meetings, interceding, asking that God in his perfect providence might see to this to remove the cancer? Yes, we have, and yes, he has done it. We need to be praying for the next PET scan in two months that that would continue to be the case. But we can't demand those things. Those were validating gifts for the apostles because it was an extraordinary age. In fact, if you read your Bible, and you, whether you think 6,000 years, 10,000 years, whatever your time span is, the huge miraculous gifts all occur in three periods of time for a very limited amount of time, maybe 50 to 80 years in each situation. You got 6,000 years and maybe a total of under 200 years of supernatural, spectacular gifts, fire from heaven and all of that. And those were Moses and Joshua. We see that, right? You see that? Elijah, Elisha, right? First and second Kings. And the first century, Jesus Christ and the apostles. Those are the three main eras as it were, of miracles. Now, furthermore, this letter was probably written about A.D. 55 to 58, somewhere in that time frame. The last recorded miracle that we have is before A.D. 60, and it's the Apostle Paul in Acts 28, verse 8. Paul healed a man. Paul, as he heals a man, he was, who was lying on a bed, afflicted with a recurrent fever and dysentery, and Paul went to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. That's the last direct statement of an apostle healing or even of a healing. Just 10 years later, and perhaps less than 10 years later, the writer of the Hebrew speaks of these types of gifts being in the past tense. So maybe about 68 AD or so, it says in Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, and you can write down this verse and look at it later. After it, it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed, past tense, aorist tense, to those, to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 12 makes it very clear that miracles and, and, and these types of healing type gifts were apostolic gifts. And so from Acts 28 for the next 40 or so years, all the way till John is penning Revelation, you don't really see these things. In fact, you don't see tongues in the later uh, uh, epistles and in the general epistles and and so, obviously, these were authenticating gifts for that early age. There's more of an emphasis put on prophecy, not the foretelling, but declaring what has been revealed. In fact, chapter 14, is, he mentions it about six times, beginning in verse 1. 
pursue love, yet earnestly, desire earnestly spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. And he goes on between verses 3 to 6, verse 24, verse 29, and so forth. Ultimately, what Paul is saying, tongues is an inferior way in the next chapter to communicate in general, because if you can't understand somebody, because they were doing it without interpreters, um, it's an inferior way to evangelize, and it's inferior unto edification for the saints, the building up of the church, that they might be edified. Thirdly, he says at the end of verse 8, if there is knowledge, it will be done away with. Knowledge, it's a simple word, gnosos. Uh, it's not necessarily knowledge itself, like, well, we have some knowledge of God or whatever, but it's the gift of knowledge. As in chapter 12 and verse 8, he makes it clear, for to one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another a word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. And so, He's talking about these revelatory knowledge such as this. He goes back to use the same verb as we saw in regards to prophecy. It will be abolished. It will be wiped out. The King James translates the verb here differently. He says prophecies will fail. Knowledge will vanish. But Paul had already said in chapter 8 and verse 1 that knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. And so he says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. What is the perfect? All all kinds of debate over this. Uh, What is the perfect? The word is teleos. It just means to bring to an end, to bring to completion. It can be translated perfect. For example, in James 1.4, familiar text on trials that we know and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, there's three primary views in regards to this. And the first is this. The perfect is this, the completed canon. In a sense, this is perfect. It's inspired. It's infallible. It's total. It's complete. Under the supervision of God's perfect providence and the leading of his spirit, the books were picked that make up the 66 books of the Bible. The second view is that of maturity of the church. There's a lot of merit to this because, again, Corinth was abusing these types of things. They're putting somebody, look at me, I can babble, and, you know, and all of this, and boasting of their knowledge and all of that, that, that the church will be mature. In fact, he uses the same word in 1420, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet and evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. It's the same word, be teleos. It's the same word, be mature, be complete. Furthermore, we know that Ephesians 4, for example, 13 and 14, speaks of the church, the maturity, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Why? So that we will no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Clearly, Paul is telling the church at Ephesus here that there's a sense in which the church matures to where they're not swung down by every new 40 days of this and 
the prayer of that and all of these types of things. They, they're, they're mature. They're not swayed so often by these fads that come and fade away so quickly. And the third view, of course, is the consummation. It's, it's, it's heaven. It's when, it's when Jesus Christ comes back to redeem His people, to, to glorify His people, to take them home, and the last judgment for the wicked. He's contrasting, as it were, this age in which we live now in the age to come. We live in the not yet, um, in, in right now, in this age. And there's a sense in which I think there's all three of these have some truth to it in this context and realizing the church that he's writing to. Um, but ultimately, what cinches it up that it's the third, as he says in verse 12, now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face, face to face, I know in part, but then I will fully, I will know fully just as I have been known. So clearly, Paul is speaking about this idea. The perfect is shorthand for the consummation of which we wait. And the, 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 that's what Paul talks about again and again in, in all of his letters, and in some letters, many, many times, such as First and Second Thessalonians. The attended goal of the creation was the consummation when all things will be made right. And that's what Paul alludes to in Romans 8. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. See, when the perfect comes, you won't have need of prophecy. You won't have need for, for some finite person to seek to explain the infinite. A finite person to seek to explain the, the, the infinite if you're in the presence of infinite and in infinity in the presence of God. That, that, that's like you know, seeking to t- turn on a flashlight in this bright sunny day outside there to turn on a flashlight. I need some prophecy so I can see better. It's already bright. Are you going to see the beam of the flashlight? No. You will be in the very presence of God and the brilliance of His light. And so he illustrates it in the two ways. And we're going to take up that second illustration next time. The the idea of the mirror, there's a lot there and seeing Him face to face. But for now, we want to conclude for the sake of time. A couple of points of application for us, brethren. First of all, in regards to love never failing, may this be an encouragement to us. Bless and worship God for the enduring nature of His love to you as a child of God. He is our Father. He's so imminent and near and cares for us and tenderly loves us. He's also our Father who reigns in heaven, the sovereign, holy one, where He's altogether transcendent. But this love, brethren, never expires. It's ours We possess it. Think of God's unfailing love to you as a sinner. And think of the thousands, if not millions of times, you have failed Him. Willingly. With your full volition and premeditation to sin against this holy God. And because of His covenant love for you, His love is unfailing John speaks of this in 1 John 4, 16, 
So we have come to know and to believe the love of God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. You see, what we have to come to terms with is we have this, these limitations with really knowing God in this life. We have, we're, we're finite creatures. And by the way, when you get to heaven, it's not like, oh, I'm infinite now, I know all things. No, you will remain finite. You will never fully comprehend God. But in our limitations here in this life, we're, we're so limited with knowledge in this life, in this age, we're limited from the weakness of our own understanding and our mind to understand the nature and the attributes of God and all the dynamics are there. Yes, even in this life we see through a mirror dimly, but then someday it will be face to face. Even in this life, our obedience can be fickle. It can be imperfect, incomplete. We stumble and we fall so often, but one day we will see Him face to face and we will be sinless never to sin against my dear Savior again. Do you long for that day, dear brethren? It's one of the benefits of the Lord's Supper. It reminds us that no matter what type of week we have had, the ups and the downs, the discouragements, the victories, and all of that, that we come to terms that our salvation rests not on our performance per se, but on the finished work of Christ. You need that reminder. Christ knew that you needed that reminder, that his people needs that reminder. And he says, do this often in remembrance of me. The question that is asked in Job, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? Of course, Jonathan Edwards has the book Charity and Its Fruits, which is based on 1 Corinthians 13. The last sermon in there is called Heaven, a World of Love, and it's based on these last verses, and I would encourage you to take that up and read that this week. Read it aloud to your family. I've read it two or three times in our family worship. It's been a while, um, and I would encourage you to read that. It's a fascinating read. You will be so enamored and thirsting and longing for heaven by the time you finish reading that. If the coals and the embers are, are a little cool and they need to be fanned back into flame, read Heaven, a World of Love. Secondly, let us be active in diligence in the furthering of God's kingdom in this age. Let us be active and diligent in that. Why? For God's glory. He is worthy. And we want to see the kingdom advance one soul at a time, another soul at a time, as the elect are brought in. Jesus states in John 4, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. So to be idle and to flitter time away, is there such folly with that? We need to have confidence, just as Paul did. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And thirdly and lastly, if you're outside of Christ today, judgment day is coming. You will stand before this holy, infinite, pure God the picture in Revelation 1 is that Christ, as it were, has eyes as a flame of fire that he could pierce in and see every, every motive of your heart. It will all be exposed in that day. 
The door of opportunity stands open today. If you will but flee to him, run to him for rescue, repenting of your sin, leaving your sin behind, turning to him, turning from your idols unto God, turning from darkness unto light and running to him and embracing him and falling down before him, begging for forgiveness. You must trust him completely. For your salvation, not the suitcases of your own good works. Well, yes, I have all this volunteer time all cataloged in these books. No, there'll be books opened in that great day, but there'll be heavenly books. You don't bring your own books. (laughs) They're heavenly books where everything is recorded. And the sad thing is, even as we, Brother Aaron and I, were at the abortion mill this last uh, Tuesday morning, preaching through the megaphone, and besides that, there's an urgent care, a couple other businesses, people going out, Men that I would have never guessed in their 60s and 70s shaking their fist, looks of anger at the good news of the gospel. Why? Because their hearts are deceived. Their hearts are hard. And someday they will stand before God. And by the way, Paul phrases it in 2 Thessalonians 1 is frightening when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These, these ones who shake their fist at God and who rebel and think that they've got it all figured out, these will pay the penalty of what? eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day. What a frightening, startling thing that that will be for that sinner at that time. Oh, the door of opportunity stands open. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You have the promise of rest for your souls, but you must come to him and come to him on his terms. Let us pray. Oh, Father, how we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us alone. You've not left us as orphans, as it were. Lord, we pray that you would indeed knit your word to our heart, that you would drive the the nails of your truth deep down into our heart. Lord, that we would continue to be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would learn these things, love these things, apply these things. And Lord, we do pray for the one that does not know you, that you would have mercy and that you would save. Lord, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.